Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to the first episode of Middle Grade Ninja for 2023. Uh, we're starting it off right with Roseanne A. Brown. Uh, I'm still here. I'm still your host, Rob Kent, author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And you know what? In 2023, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is still available as an audiobook, a paperback, and the ebook. Oh, esteemed audience, the ebook is still free to download whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. So get your hands on that for free. Start your new year off right and then come back with cash money for Banneker Bones and the Alligator People and Banneker Bones and the Cyborg Conspiracy. You're going to have a great time. Uh, I've also, under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, written some novels for older readers. For more information about those and more importantly, for thousands of interviews with literary agents, editors, authors, book people, the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. So here we go, setting the tone for all of 2023. Roseanne A. Brown, welcome to the program. Good morning, Rob. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to chat with you. I've got all kinds of, uh, of questions. The esteemed audience knows that I never torture my guests by making them sit through me summarizing either their background or their book. Uh, why would I make you do that when you're right here and could do a better job of it than I can? Uh, so if you would give a uh, esteemed audience an overview of your background, we'll go from there. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, my name is Roseanne A. Brown, but I like to say the only people who call me Roseanne are publishing people and my doctor because everyone calls me Rosie. Not even my mom calls me Roseanne, so feel free to call me Rosie. Uh, and I am the author of several young adult and middle grade sci-fi fantasy novels. Um, my first series, The Song of Race and Ruin, was a New York Times bestseller. But my most recent one, and the one I think your audience wants to hear about the most, is Serwa Boating's Guide to Vampire Hunting, which came out September of 2022 with Rick Reardon Presents. And I like to describe that book as kind of like Buffy the Vampire Slayer meets Mean Girls because it follows a young vampire hunter named Sirwa who has trained her whole life to fight Ajay, which are these like vampires that can turn into fireflies and take over people's minds. So like they're However, one day a hunt goes horribly wrong and her parents are like, yeah, you're done. You cannot do this anymore. So they dump her in the middle of nowhere, Maryland with some non-magic relatives while they go finish the hunt. So she has to face her toughest battle yet middle school so a girl who's trained to only fight monsters and punch vampires in the face has to learn to use that knowledge to survive your average american middle school with all the clicks and where do i sit at lunch and as you can probably guess it goes horribly <laughs> yeah i think i think i'll take the vampires <laughs> yeah, middle school is the worst i don't know about you but i hated middle school if you're in middle school and you're reading this it's not that bad but if you were in middle school in the past you know what i'm talking about <laughs> it's a good thing to be on the other side of uh, i think seventh grade of all my years in school i think seventh grade was probably the hardest yes there's just something about like that 12 like that seventh grade year like you're going through so much like personally a lot of kids have like finally hit puberty there so you have all the weird emotions going on and there's just something about that year because having both been a seventh grader and taught seventh grade something about it, it's like a black hole of weird feeling for everyone involved, teachers and students. I remember I was still um, very childish, although that doesn't say much. So, so I, I'm still, I've got Batman action figures behind me as we record this, still a little bit childish. Um, but so I still had a lot of my, you know, I still watched cartoons. Uh, I still went home and actually played with the Batman action figures as opposed to putting them on the shelf. 
Uh, but then I also had these new adult thoughts. I was more aware of, um, of, of just the state of the world. I started paying attention to the news and looking around. I'm like, oh my, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to have to live here. Oh, oh, wow. <laughs> I think I'll similar because I was also super, super nerdy because around that age is when I started getting into Batman and comics as well. Um, but my big, really embarrassing, what I was up to in seventh grade, I was really into role play. Um, like I had an account online where I could like role play like South Park with my friends, like Neopets and like all that stuff. So I was unfortunately that kid. <laughs> and you're, um, I, I, I mean this in the most complimentary way possible, but you're kind of a big nerd, right? You love Batman and Star Wars and all the good stuff. Yeah. It's it's very true. It is very true. Thank you. Um, I've just, I have always been a nerd. I love pop culture. Even so what, like sort of my driving force with every book, I kind of have a vibe and a tone in mind, like not even just the content of the story itself, but like what sort of energy do I want the book to give off? Like with my first series, I want to give off sort of like a fairy tale, folktale feeling, right? But this one with Sarwa, I was like, I want this to feel like a Saturday morning cartoon. Because I don't know about you, I have so many amazing memories of like waking up at eight in the morning, like still in my PJs, grabbing a bowl of cereal, I'm watching like Yu-Gi-Oh, Ninja Turtles, Transformers. And like just that high action, high quip, go, go, go energy. I wanted the book to feel like that, but in book form. And by the way, I should point out, I am also a, a huge nerd. We are in good company. Nerds <laughs> rule the world, hey. There was a game that came out a little bit last year for you, esteemed audience, uh, this year for us. Um, and I, 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 a new thing I've been trying to introduce is saying what date we record this, because some of these end up going so late and then we won't comment on current events because, you know, we have no idea what's going to be current by the time this goes up. We are chatting uh, November 9th, uh, the day before I've got my ticket to see Wakanda forever, still waiting to figure out what the heck happened with the midterm elections. I think it's good. We'll see. Um, have you seen you? Had, I know you wrote the, the Shuri graphic novel, but you, you do you get to go see Wakanda forever ahead of the general populace? Or are you waiting for tomorrow also? So certain Black Panther uh, authors were invited to the premieres and they're all lovely people. I love them a lot. I was not one of them. And it's something I've made my peace with. <sighs> imagine, audience, imagine a single tear running down my face right now. But all <laughs> that to say, no, there, while there were Black Panther author, authors at the um, premiere, I was not one of them. So I have tickets for the 10th as well with my friends. In November, November 10th, that is. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, my, my, my friend and former guest, Maurice Broadus, is also a Black Panther author who did not get the invitation. So uh, he'll be seeing it tomorrow with the, with the rest of us. <laughs> I'm hearing really good things, like which, like I feel like the Marvel and the whole team understands there's so much on this movie. Like obviously, what Black Panther did when it first came out, but in the wake of Chadwick's death, like I really feel like because I used to love the MCU, but the last couple offerings, like I just feel like it has lost its kind of direction. And so I'm really curious to see with this movie, like knowing what it represents, what it's going to mean. I feel like they're really in a place to do something amazing. We haven't seen the MCU ever actually i am hopeful we'll we'll see what we'll see i thought uh spider-man the most recent all the spoiler all the spider-mans that was good stuff i like the uh, multiverse of madness not as a marvel film like as a doctor strange film it was fine but as an evil dead four oh it was fantastic as an evil dead movie i love the visuals of that i will say that as well. i love that they let sam I, I never say his name right sam rimey is that how you say it I think it's Raimi, but I'm not a hundred percent. Okay. 
the um, the other Spider-Man guy. Um, they let Sam like really tap into his horror roots. And so I thought visually, it was probably one of the most visually interesting ones we got in a long time. But I still feel like it just didn't come together quite as tightly as I would have liked. And I can't get started on Thor, Love, and Thunder because we will be here for four hours. But I love Taika Waititi. I love Ragnarok. But Thor, Love, and Thunder just, it, it, it missed too many beats for me. You know, I didn't finish that one. I was really enjoying Christian Bale eating the scenery as a, as a great villain. But so, I don't know. I, I got involved. I got an email or something. I was watching at home and it's like, oh, I'll pause it. I'll come back. And I haven't. And that was like a month ago. So, See, that is a bad sign. Like, if you had been really invested deep into it, you would have like been like, hang on and watch. I am watching this movie. Just wait. So the fact you're able to step away and not come back, that says a lot. Ah, but... Yeah, no, it, it, it did not uh, grab my attention, but hopefully Wakanda Forever is going to be something amazing. I'm hopeful that it, Lego set assures me that it's probably going to be Shuri in the new Black Panther suit. We'll see what happens, but I feel like that's because because Nakia is going to be at some point probably a villain, maybe movie three or so, right? I think so. I think that's her trajectory in the comics. So we will, but they've also changed so much from the comics already. So who knows? I tell you, in an ideal universe, and they won't do this, but I would love to see uh, Killmonger step through a portal, uh, like, "Hey, I'm from a, I'm from another universe where I'm actually good, and now I can just be the hero." Like, fantastic! <laughs> that would be great. I'm like, I'm really curious. One, one thing I'm excited about the MCU, like how they're going to use the variants. Like, I guess, like spoilers for Loki, but like they've introduced the idea that there's different variants of every person in the multiverse, right? And so people are saying they could use that to like bring back to child and all that stuff. And I'm low key hoping they don't do that because I feel like that, like I get why audiences want that. Obviously we want our hero back, but I feel like within this story world, if they start using variants to bring back dead characters, then death is going to lose all its meaning on the story level. And so I'm like, Ooh, let's maybe not do that. Oh, you can come through with the new Tony Stark and the new Steve Rogers, and let's <laughs> just have a whole new generation. <laughs> yeah, the Young Avengers. I think they're gonna they're setting up for the Young Avengers though, because we already have Miss America, we have Wiccan, we have um some uh, Kate Bishop in the Hawkeye show, and a whole bunch of other ones. We have Young Loki. So I think what they're setting up is Young Avengers, which I'm really excited for because that's one of my favorite series. Well, that would be good. Just get some uh, less familiar heroes front and center for a little while and then do the inevitable reboot later. Yeah, 100%. So, um, but I was uh, such a big fan of, of Killmonger in the in the first film. I was like, he, he, if he didn't kill so many people, I'm with him. Like, this is a good idea. Stop killing folks and you'll be great. <laughs> yeah, and you could very much tell like they ran into the problem where like Killmonger was making too much sense. So they were also just like, let's just make him genocidal. They'll throw it off. And it's like, okay, yeah, like we're, we we can't root for him now, but like his core ideas aren't actually that bad. <laughs> so if he comes through for another universe, like in my universe, I never killed anybody. Oh, great. <laughs> Come yeah, join our, like, our superhero squad. <laughs> I was like, yeah, Michael B. Jordan, we're, we're with you. Yeah. Although I thought he was going to be Superman, but that might have been two or three iterations of the DC universe ago. I don't know where that's at now. It sounds like Henry Cavill is actually going to be back because it sounds like DC, if whatever is going on with Warner Brothers or HBO, do not know. But what is, uh, did you see the announcement James Gunn is taking over the DCEU? Yeah, and it sounds like, especially because Henry Cavill has now exited The Witcher, um, that he might actually be coming back for Man of Steel, like, or not, wait, let me rephrase that. 
it sounds like Henry Cavill might be coming back to do Superman again because I have not seen Black Adam, but what I'm hearing are hints that there are strong suggestions that Henry Cavill's Superman still exists in this universe as of Black Adam. I haven't seen the movie. I've seen the 30 seconds that Henry Cavill's in uh, because somebody tweeted it out and was like, oh, great, you saved me the trouble of buying a ticket. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, and it breaks my heart because, like, actually growing up, I was a huge, I was, even though I've written for Marvel, I was a DC person growing up. Like, I got my start with, like, the Bat family, specifically Stephanie Brown's, like, first Batgirl run, um, the Batman and Robin run with Damien um, and Bruce with like Patrick Gleason, I believe was a writer, uh, Under the Red Hood, like those were my entry waypoints, right? And so I love, love, love DC. And so every time I'm like, DC, can you just get it together? Cause like you have so many amazing stories. The TV shows were on a good run for a little while, like Flash for like three seasons made sense. And then, and then of course Arrow and all that, but that's kind of come to a natural end. And the movies, I loved Wonder Woman, loved Aquaman, loved Shazam, but it just feels like, no, and I love the new Batman with our pads because I did not think our pads Batman would work, but it worked for me. I was very happy with that. But I'm just like, DC, please, I know you have the capacity to pull this together. Well, I'm hopeful because it's James Gunn that's in charge that he'll remember Zack Snyder and he used to be pals and we'll get Zack Snyder's Justice League too. And Joss Whedon will just be crying someplace, which fine, just cry forever. That's I'm fine with that. <laughs> Bring Zack Snyder back. Yeah. But even within that, because we're still going to have our patents in Batman and Ben Affleck Batman and probably some Batman on television, like there's room for all of that. We can accept those multiple Batman. We could have multiple Superman, uh, Superman, Supermans, whatever. Uh, <laughs> we will because we've got the, the the fellow on Superman and Lois, whatever his name is. And then we'll have Henry Cavill. Tyler also have um, uh, Michael B. Jordan as a Superman. There's, there's room for all of them. Definitely. And also the lowest, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but the lowest in the lane one is Tyler Holchlin. I'm probably saying the name wrong. I know that because he's in Teen Wolf and I love Teen Wolf. He was in Teen Wolf. He's fantastic as, as, as Superman. I'm uh, not caught up on the second season yet, but I thought the first season was mostly fun. The end was a little bit what happened there, but prior to that, I was having a good time. I haven't actually watched the show. I just follow what Tyler is up to. <laughs> <laughs> What um, I've got all kinds of, of, of questions for you about some of the IP you've been able to work with. So it's good that we have established our nerd bona fides before we dig in and we start talking about uh, Star Wars and and and, Shuri and all the, the good stuff you've done. But I want to go back and I want to talk a little bit about you because uh, in addition to being uh, going through the, the, the awkward transition we all go through in middle school, uh, you came from uh, Ghana, correct? And you did not speak English uh, initially. What what age were you when you came? I was around three. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was really young, but I always tell people like, it's I don't necessarily remember the exact like coming over from Ghana, but I remember the sensation of change because even three is old enough to like, you can tell something has very shifted in your life and a biggest shift is moving to a new continent to a place where most of the people don't look like you and they don't speak your language. Like I, I remember that. And when we first got here, I struggled. I did not speak English and I didn't speak it for our first several years there. Like I got there three up to like first grade, second grade. I was really struggling with English. Okay. I love a great mm -hmm. success story when you don't, you're not speaking the language and now you're publishing multiple novels in the language. You are um, a master of letters in, 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 in the language. So when I know reading was instrumental 
for you to learn uh, the language, correct? So about when are we talking that, that reading, what kind of books are you reading and, and how does that help? Got it. So I actually remember the exact moment things started switching. It was around second grade. And at this point, like things were going bad. Like teachers were calling my parents and like, she does not understand what's going on. We might have to hold her back and like, no one wants to be held back like first grade, second grade. That's embarrassing. Um, and so my parents were like, really like, we don't know what to do. And I remember we were at BJ's, right? For those who don't know, BJ's is kind of like a Costco-like big bulk store. And there was this like stuffed dog I really wanted, right? And I was there with my mom. And so in our native language, I was like, mom, mom, the pet dog, wait, the pet dog, wait, which basically means like, I want that dog, I want that dog. My mom said to me, like in our native language, she's like, okay, if you want the dog, I want you to go to the book table, pick up one of the books in English and read it all the way through. And then if you can tell me what's about, Next time we come back to BJ's, I'll buy you the dog. And I remember being like, Ugh, okay, mom. And I storm over to the table. And the first book, I just grabbed the first book I saw. I wasn't even thinking. And the first, the book turned out to be Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And I want to pause and say that I do not agree with the uh, author's current transphobia or bigotry at all. And I'm very, very against like a lot of the rhetoric that's been coming out. But with the book itself, Harry Potter itself, that it just opened my eyes to wow like this you can put words on a page and it'll create worlds in people's minds I was just hooked from there on like I think I read that whole book in like three days which at the time like as someone who could not speak English like that is very very fast and at like eight that's a very fast time to read like a book and I just kept going and going from there and do you know I actually never got that stuffed dog and I told my mom, yeah. And I told my mom about this like a couple years ago when I started remembering the story. And she's like, "How oh, you got something better. You were now an author. And I'm like, no, I didn't. You owe me a dog. So that is a current point of contention in our relationship that comes up every now and then. Because um, I, I feel like she's on or bound to get me that stuffed dog. Uh, I might be in my late 20s, but I deserve it. So. Well, you saw those uh, sweet uh, royalties coming in from the books and, and go get yourself a dog, right? <laughs> it's it, it, it the honor thing like yes i could go buy myself one now but it's not she promised it to me so she needs to go buy it. <laughs> that's the whole thing like it's it, it, it's the honor of she buying it because i fulfilled her challenge like i don't even know if they make that dog anymore or if that like bj's is even still there but it's the honor it's the principle of the matter at this point well she better find it if she has to hop <laughs> on eBay and take a, a vintage stuffed dog to bj's to rebuy it there by god <laughs> contract must be fulfilled. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Someone, someone understands. Thank you. I have zero power. Your mother has never met me. She won't listen to me. But if she listens to the show, you know what you need to do. <laughs> also, also all Harry So you go on and you read all, uh, all, all of the Harry Potters and then from there read everything else? Or... Yeah, at the time um, when I started, I think they were on um, Goblet of Fire because the I remember not being aware of the releases before, which sounds wild to anyone in the 2000s, because like, how are you not aware of Harry Potter happening? But I was just like, again, I barely understood English well. I'm just like, I got no idea what these people are saying. Um, but after that, yeah, I remember being really excited when Order of the Phoenix dropped. Um, and then some other favorites from that age, uh, from that time in my life, A Serious Unfortunate Event, adored, adored that series. Um, Gail Carson Levine, like everything she wrote, particularly um, Ella Enchanted, and also David Knight, which was also one of the first books I ever read that had like a black girl as like major character in a non-racist way. And I remember like at that young age being like, oh my goodness, like it just blew my mind. I'm like, 
you can write about black characters as bad as it sounds like that was just not something that was prevalent in the early 2000s in a mainstream and also not very bigoted way um and another one oh cornelia funke like ink heart um the um what's it called the the thief lord or cornelia funke uh ink heart and thief lord two of my absolute favorite like i was just gravitated very heavily towards fantasy from a young age so when does it occur to you that hey somebody writes these books maybe that could be me i think i like I always low-key kind of wanted to do it. It was around high school. I read The False Prince by Jennifer Nielsen, which to this day is still one of mine, just Milligan, one of my favorite books of all time because it's one of those books, like, if you tell people what it's about, you will ruin the book, so you can't. I remember when I got to that ending, I was like, oh, my goodness. It's, I, I was, my brain was blown. I just did not know what to do. I'm, like, sitting there in the high school media center screwing to myself, and I'm like, oh, my, I want to write a book that makes someone feel like this. Like, I want to invoke this emotion in someone else. And from there, I kind of started seriously, like I'd written sort of short stories and like fan fiction before, but I really started seriously trying to write original fiction from then on. So you start with fan fiction. Um, when do when do you start writing your 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 first book? So I started writing my first book in 2016. So in spring of 2016, um, I was a junior in college. I went to the University of Maryland at the time. And I uh, remember the exact moment I got the idea for that book as well, because one of the big themes of the book is sort of mental health, right? And that was the year of my life. I really started taking my own mental health very seriously. And I went to a therapist for the first time. And I remember I was walking back to my like counselor, my very first meeting with her back to my dorm. I remember thinking to myself like, wow, if a ghost tried to possess me right now, it would be like, ooh, you got like a lot going on in there. Like, I don't want to deal with this. Like you can have this back. Like this is, this is too much for me to possess and it sounds funny now but it really got me thinking about the intersection of mental illness and fantasy and how oftentimes we'll see it'll be like a metaphor like think Elsa and Frozen how a lot of people read her powers as a metaphor for anxiety when she gets anxious the ice blows up or something um or it'll be like demonized like the villain is the crazy one or like those being hallucinations or that kind of thing right and so I wanted to write a story that took sort of mental health, mental illness, very literally, very much in the way we understand it, and also had magic side by side. And neither one is a metaphor or meant to substitute the other, but they sort of inform the other. And that um, became the catalyst for my main character, Malik, um, who has uh, these magic powers. He can sort of see spirits and things. And he also has a generalized anxiety disorder. And the story just kind of snowballed from there. And I know that you, while you're at the University of Maryland, you complete the, is it the Jimenez Porter Writer's House Program? Oh, that's Jimenez Porter's Writer's House Program. Gotcha. So that, at that point, you're, you're all in. You're like, I love writing so much. I want to make this a career. Or are you just putting a toe in the water? Where, where are you at at that point? So I went to school. I actually have a, a bachelor's in multi-platform journalism. Because when I was going to, even though I knew I loved writing, creative writing, going into college, um, I was still very much like, oh, this is not something you do full time if you're not Stephen King mindset, but I also knew it was my best skill. And I had been on the newspaper club uh, when I was in high school. Um, and so, uh, and I really still, even though I'm not a journalist at the moment, I still really have a lot of respect for journalism and enjoyed it. So my plan had been do journalism, like sort of journalistic writing as my main job and then creative writing on the side. Excuse me, sorry. And so 
what was great about the uh, Jimenez Porter's Writers House program at UMD is that it's a living learning program, which means it's a dorm sort of dedicated to one sort of um, track or like genre. Um, we also had a global studies living learning program for people inter interested in international relations and one based on languages. So where people um, lived in the dorm and you only spoke, like if you were in the German cluster, you could only speak German when you're in their dorm, like things like that, right? Um, and so the writer's house one was for writers. And so we lived in the dorm and we took a writing workshop. And so you were both living with and working with other writers on top of your actual degree you were doing. Um, because I actually tried to get a creative writing minor um, in my school. I remember when I called my the school's English department, a lady there, she was like very dismissive and she's like, oh, you don't want to do this. I don't know if you can add this to your course, blah, blah, blah. And I was just so discouraged. Like I'd never got it. And so I actually never ended up getting a official creative writing minor or degree or anything because she dissuaded me from it. And I'm so grateful that Writer's House was there and they were such an encouraging environment because I had my first two stories published while I was in Writer's House. And then later on, yeah, I started Rates while I was there and that sold a year after I graduated. So without that encouraging environment that we sort of lived and breathed writing there in the Writer's House, I don't think I'd be here right now. Get a bunch of writers together, live together, breathe, eat, talk, writing all the time. That's either the world's most brilliant idea or just a terrible idea, but it, it sounds like it was good. <laughs> well, let me put it like this. Like, so I lived there all four years because the program is two years. So I did two years. And then when I became an RA my last two years, um, they liked me so much, they asked me to be the RA for that building. So even though I was no longer officially in the program anymore, I still lived in the building. And so I was a big part of like volunteering for events and helping out. And then the last year I was the teaching assistant for the, they had, um, at the time they had three tracks. They had fiction track, poetry track, and screenwriting track. So I was the TA for the um, fiction track my senior year. So um, I was there all four years and we had some drama. Cause like, yeah, uh, a bunch of writers living together, like seeing each other 24 seven. Right, we have big emotions writers and they, we had some blow ups, like, especially my class, class of 2015, shout out if you're listening to this. Um, at the time, the director was named Jonna Schmidt and she's dear, dear, dear friend of mine. I love her. She was like, yeah, I, your class, there's something about your group. I've never seen so many people get in a fight over Hemingway at once. <laughs> like... <laughs> well, I guess if there is a writer who would appreciate you brawling over them, it would probably be Hemingway. <laughs> that attracts. <laughs> Definitely, because it was very much a situation like we were all so passionate and we all had these big, strong opinions. And another, I was like, in my cohort, I was the youngest person. I was the only freshman because historically, right, this house takes people from sophomore year up. But the um, director, Jana, she had recruited me when I was actually still in high school. I had been accepted to UMD, but I had not started there yet. So I was there at one of those like freshman visit, pre-freshman visit days where you come and like you talk to people and talk to the programs. And she was displaying there and I talked to her like, yeah, I'm interested in writing all that stuff. And she's like, oh my goodness, like send an application. I know you're not officially enrolled yet, but like, if we like your stuff, like, let's see what we can do. And so she enrolled me. And I believe I was the first freshman, actually, they actually enrolled um, in the program, like from their first year there, I was in writer's house. And then um, later on, it's now more common, but so I was also the youngest person in my group. I was only one of four women. There's uh, the woman to man ratio. Um, was a lot more skewed back then. This, this was 2013 when I started. And then also I was only one of a couple of people of color in my class as well. So I was very much like a very aware that I was sort of in the minority in a lot of different ways. And so there was very much that feeling like people look at me and they're like, what is, what is this freshman doing here? Like seniors, like all this. And I'm just like, 
that feeling like I have to prove that I am actually as good to be here with the rest of y'all as Jonna saw in me when I was just like a high schooler. So that uh, is putting, um, I don't think there's a way to put a positive spin on that because it's, it is it's your experience, but I assume that puts a lot of pressure on you to work harder, um, to be the, the exceptional in every, sounds like you hit every category of, of, uh, of, of exception for the program you could be. Definitely. Yeah. And I was definitely much like, I was very lucky like she saw spark, and she's the director of the program herself. So like she, she saw spark there and she opened that door. But I was very much like, a, I have to make this worth it. And so I definitely pushed myself a lot. And like, I, I, I went hard at it from the beginning, like putting all my, in my stories and really, really going hard at it. Um, and I know some of the, um, I'm looking back, like some of those guys I was having the most fights with, like we're actually good friends now. And they're just like, yeah, Rosie, we were definitely like, we don't, we don't know who this girl is. Like you, you seem like a child at the time, but like, no, you like, you have the juice. And I was like, yes, I have the juice. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to think that, um, and, and, and the numbers will prove me wrong on this, but I like to think that in other industries, um, being the only person of color, being the only woman, um, is going to be, it's going to be rough no matter what you do. I like to imagine that if you're with writers and creatives, it's a little bit easier than it would be otherwise. But of course, if that were true, we'd be seeing better numbers of representation within mainstream publishing, which we're not seeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely depends. Like certain corners of publishing are better at it than others. Like Kidlit in particular, Milgrin and YA, because there was such a big, like obviously authors of color, monetized authors, we have been here since the beginning, right? But we really saw something start to shift in like the early 2010s with the real rise of like people really pushing for diversity, the rise of the We Need Diverse Books movement and what that organization has done. And I feel like so much intentional grassroots work was there done by authors and booksellers and teachers that it's a little bit better in these spaces. But Writer's House, and I was in Writer's House at the time, so I was seeing this happen in YA, online YA. And then, however, in literary spaces, because that was what Writer's House was very focused on literary writing, there was a lot of like, for a while, they're like, do we going to add a genre class? Like one that just focuses on science fiction, and fantasy and all that, because um, they didn't have it when I was officially there. And I think they eventually ended up adding it, but there was still that air that like, oh, things like children's literature, fantasy, sci-fi, it's not real writing. And I find in those more sort of spaces that are a little less, in those spaces that are a little more traditional in their ways of thinking of what literature looks like, we are still seeing a lot of those old ways of thinking flourish. Well, um, traditionally, uh, another word for that would be historically, and historically, we don't have a good track record. So maybe yeah, exactly. historically, traditionally, yeah. is a little something new, which I know you're a big advocate of, uh, shaking up. Um, the canon, shake, getting new books within schools, new books for students for a new time, right? Yeah, 100%. Mostly because, like, there are so many, like, there are some classics I love out there. Like, I'm a big fan of Great Gatsby. Love that man. But I just feel like, especially with younger readers, it is so important to have books that they can really connect to and see themselves in. And it wasn't until, like, I, as a younger, like, my understanding of literature started to change when I actually started being given books by Black authors and with Black characters in them. And that did not really happen until high school. Um, and there are so many kids out there who think they don't like reading just because they don't 
see reading as something being for them. Like they see it as like, honestly, a, a bunch of old dead white guys, right? And so like, you're a young immigrant kid who don't speak English, like your family just does not have like a lot of money. And like, you're just like, but what, why am I doing this? Well, how does this apply to my life? What is there here that like connects with me? And of course we all know anyone can read a book about anything and anyone and connect. But at that young age, when we're still trying to build that foundation and that love of reading, that love of understanding, it is so necessary because it also tells them when we don't have books about young marginalized kids, like a society writes about what we feel matters and not just writes, but publishes, celebrates, brings forward what we believe matters. So when we only do it about a certain group, what we are passively reinforcing is this idea, this group matters enough to be immortalized in our stories and no one else. Like this is what our society cherishes and our society that, that believes is the center. Um, when you get that at a young age, you understand that, like even if you don't consciously realize you understand that. So you're like, if this is what's gonna be celebrated, if these are the experiences that matter to society, why should I care? Like why no one then cares about what is happening to me. My experience is not meant to be known or seen, if that makes sense. No, I think that's uh, very, very well put. I mean, why, uh, yeah, why, why, why get involved if, if they very obviously don't want you? Mm-hmm. Go find some place that does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. But that's changing. It's changing. Hopefully, it's changing. All right, because you're you're out there publishing. I'm talking to lots of other fantastic folks who are publishing books. We are seeing. I think Lamar Giles, when he was here, said, "We'll know that we need diverse books." Has succeeded when we see a lot of black mediocrity. Um, mm-hmm. Just books that aren't good, but are are being published at the same rate as all the books with white people that aren't good. <laughs> that exactly. work. All right. How do you feel publishing is doing? Um, obviously, there's a there's a way to go. Are you seeing the shift that you hope to see, or there's there's still just a very long road ahead? I think in some ways it has got. I feel like more people are aware of the problem. And with that awareness comes more people on the ground trying to fix it. I don't think it's going as fast as it could. And I do think that like it, it's waves and things because um, I'll have to double check this. I don't have the exact metrics, but I read a report recently that like 2020 was a very banner year for black bestsellers. And there are a lot of factors that went into that, but it was a year we saw so many black books hit the bestseller list, mine included. And in 2021, it turns out we actually saw less books by black authors become bestsellers. and so. In an ideal world, we're seeing the number kind of go up and up and up um, comparative like, to how much of the population is Black and how many Black authors are writing. But we saw it kind of spike and then it's going down again. And so this idea that like change is, it's like it sometimes feels one step forward, two steps back, but they're still moving forward and people are still fighting because like we, we still have to make, do this fight because it's worth it. Well, when you're looking around at, at the world and obviously just outside of publishing, um, America's not been doing so hot these past six, seven years, um, ever. <laughs> but, um, it, but certainly it, it has been very apparent with, um, well, I'll just say with a racist president has, has made that a little bit uh, more obvious and blatant where we couldn't, uh, we couldn't pretend we were somebody that we weren't, as I think some of us were maybe in the habit of doing when we had President Obama for eight years. Um, so as that becomes more apparent, not just in publishing, but everywhere, what keeps you hopeful, keeps you from getting discouraged and keeps you writing? Honestly, for me, it is the young generation and the knowledge that so many of the opportunities and things I have been able to accomplish in my life 
is because somebody nudged a door open for me, you know? And like, even like to give an example in my own family, like my mom, um, at the time when we came to America, she did not have a college degree. She has since been able to get her associate's degree. And I'm so proud of her for that. But she, because education was not something she herself um, had access to, it was so important that like, what then do I do that my daughters can have access to education, have access to resources? And so it's because she was able to do that, I was able to like have access to these books at such a young age and like be able to get to a point where I can compete in this writing program meant for people older than me, despite being the youngest in my class at the time. Um, and so I'm so aware that the people who made my life possible, I feel this duty that I have to kind of do the same for those coming up. And even if this idea like I can't fix the world, um, none of us on our own can fix it. But if I can make it a little bit better, a little bit easier for the next person, then that is what I am meant to do because there's someone who made it a little bit easier for me. Um, and also I have a lot of hope in Gen Z as well because as of right now, as we're speaking, the midterm results are still coming up. But like a lot of the races that were um, ended up going most progressive um, and with sort of um, voted in ways that were really sort of in I, how I feel moving society forward, it was Gen Z. Like Gen Z really showed up to the polls, even though there have been years of like, oh, young people don't vote, young people don't vote. But like, no, young people do vote and they do have a say in what's happening. And now that we're seeing Gen Z come into voting age and like come into like, positions of power we're seeing them that like they have not given up on the country yet when i feel like a lot of us older folks have and so seeing that they still believe that this country's fighting for makes me feel like this is still worth this is work that it's still worth doing well well said it was uh, amusing or has been amusing to me and again this will be old news when a steep audience is hearing us but for you and me it's 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 just happening. I don't know whether to say yay yet or not. That's that's how close we are in some places. Like, is it good news? It feels like not terrible news. So that's I'll take that. I'll take that over. But hopefully it's going to evolve into good news. We'll find out. Um, but uh, the, what's amusing to me is seeing how consistently all these polling places were wrong and finding out, oh, you couldn't get anyone under 30 to respond to your polls because you call and they don't answer calls. Of course not. Um, and it, it's so absurd. I feel like that kind of mirrors one of the problems that I've talked about with a lot of the representatives who've been good enough to come on the show about publishing in general, uh, is that um, the um, the path to get into publishing is so often you have to be able to afford to live on uh, either no, uh, no salary or a very minimal salary working multiple jobs, or you've got general generational wealth propping you up and you or you, you don't really even need to work. This is something you're doing for fun. Oh, I think it might be nice to have a career and you can afford to pay New York um, uh, New York uh, rent and, and be part of the conversation. And then when you know it, you know what really appeals to me, an upper class person writing by other upper class people and other, and other elite folks. And that, and that kind of perpetuates this, uh, this problem. I'm hoping that what we're seeing is one because of um, uh, because of COVID, we're seeing more of a, a opportunities for people to be working remotely. People that don't have to be there in the city don't have to pay some of those things, and we're seeing some of those doors being broken down, not to be put back up. Is my hope. I would like to see that future, and I think I think there's some evidence that there's some of that happening. What do you think? I think it's definitely like. Okay. I mean, I'm just kind of saying that's what I gave before, but it's true. It's happening as not as fast as I'd love to see it. But I know like as we're speaking right now, tomorrow, November 10th, 
HarperCollins is actually, they're about to go on an indefinite strike because they've been negotiating for fair wages. The HarperCollins Union, I should say. The HarperCollins Union is about to go on an indefinite strike. And so by the time your readers are watching this, the strike will hopefully be concluded because I don't want to think they'll have to go on strike till January. But like, it's because the workers have come together and realized that like the pay is not sufficient to like, like you said, living in New York and like the amount of work they're doing. And it's very much a, like people on the ground sort of realizing that like if we want publishing to continue and to be representative of the stories we're telling that people are telling them for, like something has to change. Because yeah, like you said, it's still such an apprenticeship model. It's still such a like you work um, all these hours and then when it's your turn to be the boss, you make the people under you work all these hours unfairly just because like that's just how we've always done it. And there's people saying it does not have to be like this and it, we can change it, but change comes slowly and oftentimes the people in the highest positions aren't inclined to that change because very few people will give up power willingly, you know? And so it's interesting to see how the power is going to shift. And I'm kind of watching the strike closely to see like how it's going to conclude. And like, uh, if, if the union like can kind of usher in like a new stage of publishing. Well, fingers crossed. I mean, you were, uh, you were an intern with Integral Publishing, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I was. Uh, back when I was in college, actually. So that was that. I don't know. Maybe we'll cut this out. Was that a paid position? Or? That was not. It was an unpaid internship. Okay. Um, so you were able to, to to use that position to. I'm assuming at some point you learned some tricks uh, about publishing, some some tips for the the road because you have had a successful publishing career to date. Or maybe that happened completely separate. <laughs> well, what was it was definitely a big help because like, even though like there was a time I considered like, do I want to be an editor? Do I want to be like, is there a role in publishing I want besides an author? And even though I ended up settling on author, obviously doing that entangled internship taught me so much. And also it introduced me to Pitch Wars, which is how I ended up finding my agent and selling my first book. But yeah, it was definitely like a state of, well, I'm grateful I had that internship. There's still a larger conversation and this is not even just publishing specific this is many industries like the idea should unpaid internships even exist and like I was very lucky to be able to take an unpaid internship because um I had a paying job and I was like an RA and my um, room and board was filled so I had the resources to be able to take an unpaid internship but this idea of people should not have to do unpaid labor just period that's still a lot um that's still a conversation being had. And so, and that kind of goes to the apprenticeship model. Like, yes, I got so much great information and this is nothing against like the people I was working for at the time, but just the larger question of how many people who would have been just as good in the role as I was, they weren't even possible just because they could not afford to take an unpaid internship on. Gotcha. Um, so for for all the folks out there that we want to see coming right behind you, you want to be making the path for what things that anyone who's listening to us who's working in publishing could make, what, what changes could be made to make that path easier for folks? I think well, on a corporate level, obviously, like investing more in fair wages for employees, more remote work so that people who aren't in New York or on a coastal area can like be involved in publishing um, on a more sort of editorial level, like hiring more diversely because what we're seeing is our experience I know myself and many other uh, marginalized BIPOC authors are having is like our books are being acquired right but then we're dealing with uh, publishing teams who don't have sort of any history or sort of 
the resources necessary to be able to work with us. Like something that many black authors find happens is with copy editors, right? So many black authors write in African-American vernacular English, AAVE, which is its own language. It has its own grammatical rules. Like it's not just internet slang. And they will have their stuff copy edited to death, like fixed quote, I'm doing air quotes here for y'all listening, quote unquote, fixing the grammar and like making it correct, even though just what is correct is what we call is like, I think there might be a new term for it. Um, forgive me if I'm forgetting it, but what we consider standard English, um, because, and then, so it is an, another level of edits that we do that many of our counterparts don't have to do, having to then fix those edits and then do it in the, the language we wrote it in correctly, and then explaining to our team why we did it that way. Like that is just a, a whole separate edit level then. So that's an extra edit level of Black Book has gone through that a book by a non-Black or white author did not have to go through. It's little things, invisible things on the back end like that, people don't consider. And of course, edits take time. Like anything we have to do that book takes time and it's our job, right? And so it's hurdles like that, that sort of get in the way and make the process even more difficult when we've already gone through so many hoops to get there. So I'd love to see more publishing houses having more people on the teams from diverse backgrounds and just different cultural backgrounds who can understand these things. And it's not just Black authors too. I've talked to uh, one of my friends, an East Asian author, and she had a similar thing happen to her. She had so many sort of like Korean um, culturally relevant things in her book that her editor, her copy editor, like took out or changed because she did not understand them. And she had to take time out to fix it and explain it to this person. And that I feel like is not very fair. And so if they had more people on these teams with more backgrounds or even just access to more people who had the cultural knowledge and relevancy needed to understand these stories, that would also make the playing field a little more easier for us. So we're not also doing the work of both writing and educating, because one of the things when you're coming from the majority population, or not even just majority, but the one that has historically been seen as the center, like you don't have to, if your world is based on like England, like you're writing Westeros or something, you don't have to explain how like knights and kings work to the average editor, because that is a cultural understanding that we have, right? but someone who doesn't have the cultural understanding of Ghanaian mythology, I now have to explain that to you, then you can even be in a place to edit it. So it's just, I, I don't know, I, ran, I feel like I rambled there for a second. I don't know if that made any sense. <laughs> no, it was, 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 all, was all interesting. I'm wondering, um, because there is this problem of, of, in the example you gave, literally the, the copy editor does not speak the language that they need to, to know. Um, to be able to provide that insight. So um, for somebody else who might be in this situation, um, could, is it possible? I know sensitivity readers exist, sensitivity editors exist, sometimes publishing houses enlist their services um, uh, or hire them. Um, is, um, is it possible to put together your own team and bring them in uh, do, do you have to get to that Rick Riordan level before they let you do that? Or <laughs> The thing is you can, but I also... I feel very strongly we should not have to. I know definitely there are authors who do that because for them, like, it's important enough to do that. But again, because it's like that, it goes to the idea, like another layer that like non-marginalized authors don't have to deal with, you know? And so like, it shouldn't have to be that like we have to assemble the resources for, for our book to be edited correctly and with the respect it deserves, you know? And so I'd either like the publishing houses to either put together teams, have enough of a diverse base team that they have someone in-house who can do it, or if they don't, they have the resources then or allocating the resources to get those, to put those teams together on behalf of these books. 
I like maybe a, a savvy agent could do that on your behalf. Just put that in the contract. Make sure you have such and such a, an editor on 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 available for a freelance basis, if nothing else. Uh, to make sure we don't have this copy edit problem, or am I dreaming? Is this my 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 publishing fantasy that can't exist in reality? I feel like that is again, like again, technically an agent could, but again, it, it's it, it, it's it, that feels like a band aid over the structural issues that simply like the way the teams are set up are in a way that this cultural like there's a gap in the cultural knowledge needed to publish books as widely as we want to, and like. It's in line with these publishers' wishes. They want to publish diversity. They want to reach as much of an audience as possible because, like, for both like art reasons, but also money reasons. These are businesses, and a bigger audience means more money. And so, because this is what they want, I feel like it is also on their end to also put that, like, structure themselves a way to make that possible. So, again, like an agent could do that, but again, that still goes. It it, it still puts the problem back on the individual when it's like I want to see an industry-wide shift in the thinking of how we deal with this. Uh, well, um, hopefully we're we're going to continue to see that if we were having this conversation back in, I was at 2006, uh, 2006, 2006, 2016, when we start to see we need diverse books. I think uh, it was, uh, more of a major move, or mainstream movement. I believe it was 2014 was a year that it was either 2014 or 15 it was founded. But yeah, by 2015, it was really picked up theme. Gotcha. So if we were looking at that, um, we would have said, though, this seems impossible. We've definitely seen some inroads uh, made. Hopefully, we're going to continue to see that. We're not going to go back. We're going to continue to see um, progress being made. Ideally, uh, we'll see. <laughs> Probably be a lot of, here's a couple of steps, a step forward. Here's two steps back. Here's a step forward. Here's two steps back. But eventually, hopefully, we'll, be, we'll live in that, that Lamar Giles dream world of Black mediocrity surrounding us and, and Asian mediocrity, all the mediocrities <laughs> surrounding us, and we'll be in good shape. Ideally, yes. Like a world where like the stories, like that our stories can exist matter in the way that like we need them to. Yes. Well, uh, one thing a esteemed audience can do if they're listening to this and they're getting fired up and saying, what can I do to help? Well, by God, you can go out there and you can get yourself a, a copy of Sir Wabotag's Guide to Vampire Hunting. Support uh, these books and let publishers know there's money to be made. There's gold in them hills. Publish these books and the readers are going to come out, right? Yeah, definitely. Also, I feel like we, we got so into like nerd stuff and all that. I don't think I actually talk about Sir Wabotag. <laughs> I, I, I feel like if any of your readers actually want to know about the <laughs> You know, that might be uh, one of my roughest segues ever. I don't care. It's a free show, esteemed audience. You're fine. <laughs> but uh, for, for esteemed audience who's pulling up the, the, the page now and ordering their copy, uh, heading to their, their local independent bookstores to, to secure a copy, what do they need to know about, uh, about the book? I guess the biggest thing to know is, like I mentioned, the Saturday morning cartoon energy and the, the um, it is a book about vampires, but like um, the vampires here are based in Ghanaian folklore, right? And so if you're thinking Dracula, Edward Cullen, like that's not going to help you. So these creatures are called Aje, and Aje is a vampire that can turn into a firefly and it can take over people's minds. And so that means anyone, and you would never know if someone was possessed by one. So like your best friend, your children, your spouse, they could be an Aje and you would never know and they'd be fucking people's blood in secret, and they'd be causing discord. And so that is the kind of vampire we're dealing with, and that's the world Sarah grew up in. 
because this is a real creature we have in Ghana. And I found it so fascinating, this idea of like, anyone around you can be a monster. And so I really want to explore the idea when anyone can be a monster, how do you trust anyone? Anyone, oh my God, let me rephrase that. When anyone can be a monster, how do you trust anyone? And so that is with Sarwa, that's something she's learning there because that is unfortunately in our world as world, as our world as well, the idea that like, quote unquote, monstrousness is not something you're going to see on the surface. Like the people who have beliefs that could intentionally like directly lead to like the death or just harm to you or your loved ones or your families, like you're not going to know just by looking. And so it was very much fun to explore that using the idea of safe, unsafe, like monsters in the world through the lens of like this creature. I think that must speak directly to young readers because um, without needing to be told, they sense that there are some adults around them that are definitely more dangerous than others. I remember where I was in fourth, fifth grade, the first time I said, oh, that adult meant me harm. That's a problem. Mm -hmm. um, I assume, well, I'm sure, I'm sure the world is a much better place now, but there, there are probably some young people who, who need to be aware of the, the monsters around them. When you're talking about themes like that, when you're talking about vampires, um, you're still you're still writing middle grade. Everybody on the cover has got a weapon. Um, <laughs> how do you, where's the line between I want to be scary, I want to I want to make sure that we're doing monster hunting justice, but I don't want to go too dark. Where do you find that space? I think for me, it's uh, an understanding that kids live in the same world we do. Like anything an adult deals with, a kid has slash is dealing with. So like things like death violence, racism, bigotry, bullying, like kids are dealing with all that. So for me, it's never dumbing it down as much as it is simplifying. So like with um, Sarawa, I'm trying to, like, for example, there was one character, her father's been deported. She's a character. And so we're seeing her struggle with that. And so even though the book's obviously not about like immigration laws and all this, like, and we don't go into the exact details of the deportation, we're still seeing the effects on her because there are kids out there who families are been broken apart because of deportation and for me I knew I didn't want to do any euphemisms like her dad's not around anymore or anything like it's just on the page like no he was taken from because he was not allowed to be in the country anymore um and I found young readers really appreciate that frankness that like yes this is happening to you yes this is real um or even racism in schools like like you mentioned like realizing that an adult in authority over you means you harm and how devastating that is especially a, a place you're being forced to be at eight hours a day against your will with people you are being forced to spend time with and then no one believes you like that is a very hard thing to have to deal with and so realize like it's very important to speak to young readers and be like yes this is actually happening to you and it's traumatizing and it's not in your head it's not actually like you're not imagining this because there's a teacher in Sarawak who was inspired by a teacher I actually had who are to this day, the worst teacher I've had. And a lot of people reach out to me like, oh my God, Mrs. Dean is so horrible. Like, how could a teacher act like this? And I'm like, I know a teacher can act like this because a teacher treated me and my friend like this. Do you have any, have you received any kind of confirmation as to whether or not this teacher has read the book or is aware that you're spreading the word of their evil? <laughs> no, because I, I can say right now, while Mrs. Dean is based off this teacher, I, that is not that teacher's name. Um, if they've read the book, um, if they realize it's them, I may hope. I hope they reflect on their lives. But no, I've not read any, and I've not looked for it because I have no desire to speak to them ever again. 
Well, if they feel some kind of way about it, I don't know. Next time, try not to suck. You know, exactly, exactly. Maybe don't be bad. <laughs> try to be less of a jerk in life, and less mm-hmm. bad things will happen to you. Although, in my experience. Um, a lot of times, when not that I would ever do this, but other authors have told me that if they've written um, a, a, about a character that was villainous in real life or had villain 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 tendencies, um, they would read the book, never pick up on any of that, and assume if anything, the hero uh, would, must have been inspired by them. That's interesting. I don't think I've ever had that happen to me, but that's just because, like, so like for example, this teacher I had way back when I was still in like public school, so it has been over. It, we're getting close to like maybe. 10 years since the last time I saw them. So like, maybe it's just because the people who inspired this villainy, it's, they're so far removed from my current state of my life that I have just no idea like how they react to it. But I can believe that because I believe it takes a lot of self-awareness to understand when you're harming others, which all of us have the capacity to do. But like, if you lack that self-awareness to see how your actions can cause harm and cause hurt, I doubt you'll ever lack the empathy and just the cognitive work needed to recognize oh this is me like to quote taylor swift because her album just came out as of our recording like i'm the problem it's me it you need a lot of self-awareness to get there and i found the very worst people who need that self-awareness never have it or have it uh too late to really do much benefit like in retrospect there were moments when fifth grade where i was the bad guy that's not going to do anything for my fellow fifth grade students that i i realized this now well beyond <laughs> but like oh i shouldn't have pulled uh so-and-so's hair but that, that was my bad <laughs> doesn't help around the moment but uh you do get there uh, uh eventually i think Everybody, but not everybody would have this moment. Uh, it's difficult for me to imagine certain politicians having this moment. But I think most people, if they look back and they're honest with themselves, will sooner or later remember a time when, oh, I could have done that better. I was the bad guy that time. Definitely, yes. And it's like, uh, it's, I believe it's like, it's like you said, like you can't change the past, but like if you can learn from it and move forward and do better, even that is something, you know, even if it's understanding the people I hurt are never they might never forgive me and they don't have to forgive me, but that does not mean I can't become a better person. Well, hopefully that's what, uh, what's happening with this teacher uh, is they've had a moment of uh, self-reflection. Won't do you any good. You're, you're already out of the, out of the school, but might help the future students. Exactly. Exactly. Because like, well, I'm, I'll be okay if I never get an apology. If no other student they have has to go through what I went through. I mean, apology wouldn't hurt though. That would not hurt them. It would not hurt them. <laughs> so uh is 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 sir is, is this going to be the start of a new series are we you have more books planned or yes so we officially i just turned in book two actually and the title of that one is farewell botting's guide to witchcraft and mayhem and i just saw the cover and it is so so fun so i'm working on that and it's currently two books but all, all i can say as of right now is the odds of more books are very likely, but if you like it and you want to see more, definitely keep buying it so it becomes even more likely. Pre-order. Why not? <laughs> Pre-order all day. Tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Um, when when you're doing that, uh, do you do you plan your books out ahead of time? Are you plotting and here's how the series is going to be for the arc? Or is it just one book at a time, see how it goes? So for me, um, the character's emotional arc is key. Like for me, I always sort of plan out the emotional arc I'm going for. Like with Farewell, I knew I was going from this girl who was like, she is trained, like 
the irony of the fact she is trained to be a vampire hunter, she's traveled all over the world for this, but she's very sheltered because of this. She's not actually spent time with other kids and never made friends. So we're going from her who's had this, she thinks she's very worldly and then realizing when she's in this average school, just how sheltered and limited her world's actually really been to her becoming a better sort of more empathetic person and understanding people better and learning friendship actually is magic. The ponies were right. Um, and so that was that arc that starts in book one. And then of course, with, as we're continuing the series, we're seeing that like, that is not something just like a single book is gonna teach a person, even if they're 12. And so I know that arc of taking Sarah from this, like she's someone who like, like you have certain characters who kind of start the series, like they're uh, low self-esteem, they don't believe in themselves. And like, it's very much a journey of like gaining that belief, right? So Sarah, I was starting with someone who believes herself very strongly, believes in her mission. And it's what it's like to have that belief challenged when you're coming from such a strong core, like value moral system that is then challenged. And so that journey of what this, Book one is where we're seeing that first challenge to her belief system happening. And then book two, we're going to see the effects of that. And then in future books, we're going to see once your value system has been challenged and broken apart, how do you go forward from there? What values do you keep with you? Which ones do you build? Because for me, uh, that was what the story this character needed. And that was what I was fascinated by more than like your traditional, like hero learns to believe in themselves kind of arc we see in certain like fantasy books like this. So do you tend to... Uh... Uh, start with character, find out what's the character's arc, and then worry about the uh, plot and the action and all the stuff that's got to be moved in place. It it kind of depends for me because with Serwat, it actually like it it started with the Ajay. Actually, it started with the vampire because it, I I've discovered this creature when I was researching for my YA series, and I could not fit in my first series, but I love the idea of this mind controlling vampire firefly so much. I was like, I want to write about that one day. So when it came time to start, um. How I ended up with Rick Reardon Presents was uh, in the ye old days of 2019, um, it was like August and I had just come back from uh, my time in Japan. I used to be a teacher in Japan. So I'm back in America. I'm dealing with like culture shock again for the second time in my life. Um, there back in America. And my agent emailed me like, hey, I'm talking to this editor. She's looking for pitches. If you want to pitch or something. I'm like, oh yeah, sure. Why not? Who's the editor? She's like, um, Stephanie Lurie at Rick Reardon Presents. And I'm like, Rick Reardon Presents? Because I was an OG Percy Jackson fan. Love, love, love that series. And I had never written middle grade before, but I'm like, uh, if I have a chance to pitch Steph and like Rick, I'm, I'm going to take it. So the vampires came first. And the first pitch I had was actually more national treasure, like treasure hunting, because I'm a big fan of national treasure. I love that movie. Uh, very silly and I adore it. Um, and my agent was like, okay, uh, not sure how I feel about the treasure hunting, but I'm loving the vampires. Can we maybe hone in on that? And I was like, I can do that. And so from there, I'm like, okay, vampires. The, the, the center of the story is the vampires. Who then is the most best character to like hone in on this? And I realized it would be someone who is aware these vampires are real and who lives with this and is trying to deal with it. And then Serwa came from that. And so once I had her though, like this character who's in opposition to these vampires, then the world and the story came around her. So usually versus like race, which I talked about earlier in the podcast, where I had that character first who's dealing with mental illness and magic side by side. And then the world came around him. I kind of had this like world base. It wasn't a full world yet, but just like I knew the base of this world needs to revolve around the vampires. And then I had the character and then everything else came. 
And it, um, it seems like you must have just a, a tremendous agent or she has a tremendous client, some their combination thereof, that you're getting this great IP work because you, you've got the Shuri graphic novel, you've got your Star Wars story. I assume you've got other um, IP that you can't yet talk about that's, that's, that's somewhere in the pipeline. Definitely. And the interesting thing about some because like, first off, my agent is amazing. But also, like, like the Star Wars one, actually, they reached out to me for that one. Um, and like, directly, like, Jennifer Hennel, she was the um, editor on that. She literally DM'd me because she saw me screaming about Star Wars on Twitter. And she's like, hey, we're putting this together. Like, would you be interested? And I was like, oh, oh Star Wars? Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's definitely been, like, a give and take of, like, my agent finding opportunities to hear about them. And then also, like, my platform, I built up, reaching people in the industry and being like, hey, she might be a good fit for this. And you're you're a mega Star Wars fan, right? We were talking uh, all of our love for nerd stuff earlier, but is, is Star Wars like what what's what's the highest level of like for me? The highest level of my nerddom is Batdom is Batman. I love everything else, but that's that's the peak for me. Is Star Wars your peak, or what is your peak? I actually wouldn't say it's my peak because it's weird. I feel like I've known very intensely for Star Wars, but I'm always honest about this. Like, I'm someone who up until like very recently I had only seen the movies and I kind of just knew tangentially what was happening in like Clone Wars and some of the shows right so like I'm not even as like I loved them so much but I'm not as deep as like someone who could tell you like on random pages of the Obi-Wan Kenobi novel from 2003 what does Qui-Gon say on page 476 I can't tell you that um but for the peak of my nerddom that is such an interesting question um for a long time, it was Bat Family. Like, not even just Batman, but Bat Family specifically, because I love the Robins. I love Jason Todd. I love that. Um, some other things that would... I'm, I'm, like, looking back here at myself, because I know books for a long time. Anime. And I am obsessed with anime. I love Naruto, My Hero Academia, or I like the whole club Fruits Basket. Like, I think anime is a big, big one. I love cartoons. Over the Garden Wall, Steven Universe. Like, I'd say, like, the peak of my nerddom is actually going to be more towards... Um, cartoons and anime and books but i'm just such a big nerd of all of it that it all kind of melds together but that family is really really up there just because it meant so much to me when i was young that reminds me i missed my opportunity earlier when we we're talking about james gunn but mr gunn i assume you're still listening uh, now that you're in charge of dc give us that leslie grace batgirl movie i can't i can't wrap my head around there being a mic like Leslie Grace Batgirl movie in existence and I can't see it are you out of your mind give it to us <laughs> I feel like the problem is it might be even above James's head because the decision was made by David Z whose last name I, the Z-A-S like L-A-V him um the new CEO there and he did that made that decision before well I don't know when James was brought on but at least before James was announced he was head of DC and so even if James wanted to release it, I don't know if he can. I mean, I never thought we'd see the Snyder Cut, and we did. And it was worth it. It was such a nice moment of validation for a fan because it was like, oh, my God, if it comes out and it's terrible, what have I done with my with my tweets? What have I done? <laughs> what have I devoted this much energy to? Um, but then it came out and it was, oh, my God, it was the miracle. I hoped it was. Woo. Uh, and I feel like that's going to be the case with Batgirl. I have to hope and believe we live in a world where we're going to see Batgirl and it's going to be everything that I know it should be. I truly hope because like if this is there's like a conspiracy theory that this is all a very extended PR stunt so that to like build up hype for Batgirl similar to how hype for the Snyder Cut was built and I'm like if this is true like I, I try not to follow online conspiracy theories because I think it's a thin line between like fun ones and then actually like dangerous violent ones but I'm like if that is true 
that is the most convoluted promotion tactic I've ever heard in my entire life. Well, that might be brilliant since they had to delay a flash since Ezra Miller is being very Ezra Miller anyway. If you if you know it, I assume they can't do Batgirl since Michael Keaton's continuity won't be explained until Flash comes out. And you know, if you have Michael Keaton back as Batman, you don't cut him out of the movie. Come on. <laughs> so maybe you you might be right. The conspiracy. Oh my God! You have you have spread a ray of hope to my heart that maybe that is true. That once they get Flash sorted, Batgirl will come out. Like okay, fans, you asked for it. You're all gonna show up to the theater because you've been demanding it for a year. That. You're playing Maybe. games with my emotions, WB, but okay, I, I can live in that universe. Exactly, and it's like, uh, it just seems like such, it just seems like so much work, like, for a movie, especially because, like, Batgirl was straight to HBO Max, it was never going to be in theaters anyway, so, like, to do all this for a movie that was never going to be in theaters anyway, just, it, if they pulled it off, that would be very impressive from a marketing standpoint, but it also just seems like there's so many ways it can go horribly wrong that I'm like, it's easier to, for me to believe that they just cut it for money. Well, I'm uh, watching our time, and it's, it's flown by. It always does. Um, but esteemed audience knows before we get out of here, I can't I can't call it a day without asking you, uh, Roseanne A. Brown, have you ever seen a ghost and or a flying saucer? I have never seen a ghost and or flying saucer, but two things on that. Number one, um, when I used to live in Japan, I lived near a place called uh, Hakui, which has this, um, which is one of the places in the world with the most UFO sightings in the entire world. Um, and they had a museum there, Cosmo Isla Hakuri, which is a whole museum dedicated to UFOs, one of the coolest places in the entire world. They had a glow-in-the-dark elevator. I loved it. So I have been to a place with one of the most UFO sightings in the entire world, and it's like in the countryside in Japan. And number two, um, I have never seen a ghost, but I did have in my house, when we first moved in there, I, my room is right under the door to the attic. And apparently when we first moved in, I was like around six. And I used to tell my mom all the time, like, mom, can you please stop going in the attic at night? Like, I'm trying to sleep. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, I'm hearing footsteps above me. Someone's walking around the attic. And she's like, I do not go up there. What are you? It's only insulation. There's nothing up there. I'm like, well, what am I hearing? Um, and she, they went up and looked and they found nothing. Nothing was disturbed. And someone could argue I was just hearing creaking from like the wind or something. But I like to believe that I was hearing, I named him Evan. I like to believe Evan was up there just puttering around. I just read an anecdote on Twitter, and I can't remember the the name, so this will be useless to you, esteemed audience. But it was about a woman in the early 1900s uh, who had her um, her uh, secret uh, boyfriend that she was having an affair with living in the attic. Did you see this? I saw that story. I thought it was wild. So maybe it's a ghost. Maybe it's a, a secret smuggled person <laughs> that could be living in your, in your attic for years. I hope not because I was right under my room. Um, I would be very upset by that. <laughs> One of my favorite things is that they moved and and the and the husband thought, well, we must the ghost must have followed us. We're still haunted because they found a spot in the new attic for this for this person also. What a <laughs> what a life. <laughs> I would read that memoir, My Life in an Attic. But whoa, go on. <laughs> it's very gothic, like very weathering heights. <laughs> I am so in love with this person that I will cut myself off from the rest of the world and just stay in this attic. <laughs> Basically. Find somebody who loves you like the attic. No, that's probably terrible advice. <laughs> yeah, no, someone ended up dead. Don't, no, don't do that. 
<laughs> well, this has been an absolute privilege and a, and a pleasure. I appreciate Rosie. I, I appreciate you you making the time for us. Um, my final question for you is always some variation of if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would have been useful, and give yourself some advice that would have made easier your path that might make easier the path of everybody who's watching or listening to us. What would you go back and tell yourself? I would tell myself. The only thing you can control is the writing. Stop trying to control everything else. Because I look back so much like, oh my God, if I send all these postcards, booksellers will buy my book more. Or if I like make all these Twitter graphics, more people buy my book. And it's just like, like I can't, I don't want to say that stuff never helps because it can, but like there was this mindset, like if I just do enough, it'll cause my book to succeed. And like, while my books have had some successes I couldn't even imagine, every sort of major success has been completely out of my control like things like Barnes and Noble Monthly Pig or hitting the New York Times with all that was stuff that I had nothing to do with. And so once I'm now I'm at a stage I've accepted that like I can control the book, but I cannot control anything else after that. And when I think about how many those first couple years of my career I wasted, like just being like, I need to do more, I need to do more. And it got to the point where I was letting the book suffer because I was so like, like the thing about books is by the time a book is coming out, we have been done with it for like close to a year. So we're already in the next book, right? So even right now, it's like Sir just came out as when we're talking like two months ago, but I am still very deeply in book two. Like, and I'm happy to do things, talking about Sir going to festivals and stuff. But like the majority of my brain space is dedicated to book two. Cause I learned this because the mistake I sort of made with my first series is when my brain space should have been focused on book two, I was still so focused on book one. And like, what can I do to make it a bigger success and reach more people, blah, 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 blah. And then the quality of book two was suffering, which is why it took me a little longer to edit it. So now I'm like, focus on what you can control, put your brain space where it needs to be. And once the book is done, it's out, it's going to do what it's going to do. And it's the next book needs you more than the book that is out, which sounds wild to audiences because like you're seeing an author promote the book that just came out. But on an artist creative level, your head needs to be in the next project. I think that is the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? So I'm currently most active as of right now, November, Twitter, who knows? Well, that will be in January, but on Twitter, I'm at Rosie's Ramble. That's R-O-S-I-E-S Ramble, um, like possessive Rosie's. Please don't tweet at Rosie Rambles. That is not me. I don't think she likes it. Um, and that is the same handle on Instagram as well. I'm also currently moving to Tumblr a lot, which... I'm saying moving, it's more like coming back because Tumblr was my teenage haunt back in the early 2010s. Um, I'm rosannebrown.tumblr.com over there. So those are probably the three I'm going to be most active on. Uh, don't bother following me on Twitter, esteemed audience. I was never that active on there. And now that it appears to be going right down the Elon Musk tube, uh, yeah. that's it. <laughs> it's fine. Do follow Middle Grade Ninja. I had there for all interviews, almost as good as this one with agents, authors, book people. Download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beans. It will change your life. And God will let I'm alive. I'll see you next week.